Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. Why would we go to the middle of nowhere for who knows how long? Why? Why? How about because this is the most important thing to ever happen in the history of the world? I don't know if Barbenheimer is the greatest thing to ever happen in the history of the world, Josh, but it is possible we didn't get to everything there is to say about the films when we reviewed them a couple of weeks ago. I did not expect that was my that much enthusiasm out of, out of the gate. I love it. Listeners do offer up some Oppenheimer thoughts, and they dare to suggest that we've made a few top five errors recently. So we're going to dig into the mailbag, and we'll also continue our African cinema marathon with a Senegalese film that made the 2022 Sight and Sound Top 100 Greatest Films poll. That and more. Adam, the listeners, they need us until they don't. Ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. Later in the show, we'll play Massacre Theater, get to the second film in our African cinema marathon, Usman Samben's Black Girl from 1966. And I'll share some personal and professional news. Big announcements coming. Always Josh. exciting. Personal mm-hmm. and professional news. I love it. But before we dive into some recent feedback, we wanted to encourage you, you know, if you like what you're hearing, to give us a rating or review over on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, whatever podcast platform you choose where they allow you to rate us or review us, please do it. Though, Josh, most listeners do find us on Apple Podcasts. We want to thank Ava from Kentucky, Podcast Racing, Phil Ogden, and RWRII for their recent reviews. They were all wonderful But this one from Ava in Kentucky, I hope we're not going to embarrass her too much. She did post it in a public forum. This one particularly warmed our hearts. I found this podcast when I was nearly 16 years old, and I was immediately taken aback. As a minor film nerd at the time, my obsession with film spotting was the first indicator that my passion for cinema was greater than my other passions in life. I am now about to turn 20. And I am a film student at one of the best film schools in the nation, the University of Southern California. Before I listened to film spotting, I never picked up a camera in my life. 
Listening to Adam and Josh offer such rich and nuanced opinions about movies I loved made me realize I wanted to create this same kind of art. I grew up in a small town on a farm in Kentucky with only one movie theater. So this podcast was my entire movie nerd outlet for my time there. This podcast entirely shaped the way I view and appreciate cinema so much that I wrote about them in my application to USC. It's my dream that one day they will have great things to say about the movies I hope to create. Thank you. And USC let Ava in anyway, Josh. <laughs> they must, How about that? They must not have taken the time to listen to the show. The, the one thing I'm concerned about, Adam, does this make us in any way responsible for Ava's tuition bills? Because then I'm yeah, concerned. Quite possibly. I did like your initial comment. You wondered if Ava's parents were happy with us or not. <laughs> we'll find out. Variation on the Ava. same theme as, as a parent of uh, soon-to-be two college students, yes. Right. Maybe Ava can let us know how that's going on the home front. And we, too, hope that someday you'll be making movies and we'll get to say very positive, great things about them. Thank you, Ava. Thank you, everyone who shared a review this week. We would love for more of you to do it if you haven't already or, you know, just Tell a friend. You don't have to do it digitally. You can just say to someone, a colleague, whoever, I like this show. You should seek it out. Of course, you could also do that on one of your social networks if you are so inclined. Another way to support us here at Film Spotting, Josh, is to join the Film Spotting family. You get to listen early and ad free. You get a weekly newsletter. You get monthly bonus shows. We're going to have a good one. Here's my tease because we haven't fully shared the details yet with our Film Spotting Advisory Board members. That email is coming very soon. Should go out this week or next Monday or Tuesday at the latest. But we're going to have a meeting on August 24th. We're actually thinking about turning that meeting into the bonus show. We'll make it a live interactive recording. And we're talking all about the Pantheon. We are considering dramatically shaking things up with the Pantheon and not only trying to codify it a little bit more, but try to make it something that's actually a more integral part of the show every year. Major renovations are yes. soon to be underway. The Pantheon for relatively new listeners is a list of films. You'll find it on our website. It's been around since before my time, Adam. Do you remember, mm -hmm. was it right at the beginning, 2005 or a few years yeah. after? I would have to look it up, but Sam and I had this in mind from the very beginning and a few months into the show at the very latest, we were putting films in this elite group that we said, you know what? We don't have to mention those on top five lists. It's just understood that they're great. Understood that they're great. A few personal favorites also mm -hmm. in that category. And yes, because they were in the Pantheon, that made them ineligible for top five lists going forward. So listeners have heard us say this from time to time. It included, it came up with our top five movie scares just last week. Jaws not eligible. It's in the Pantheon. We're thinking of rethinking that process. And we're going <laughs> to have good the way family to members it. be a part of that rethinking. Yeah. If you want to become a Film Spotting Advisory Board member, you've been thinking about maybe making the jump to the Film Spotting family or upgrading your membership, you get to be part of decisions like this, conversations like this. You get to tell us that this is a terrible idea. We might not listen to you and do it anyway and make a huge mistake, or we'll do it anyway, and you'll get to actually help us make better decisions. How about that? So, we would love to have even more people be part of that Film Spotting Advisory Board call on August 24th. And one more benefit, of course, you can have access, depending on your tier, to the complete archive of episodes. Now, 
This is episode 931 proper canon. It's episode 931, Josh. Can we call it that? But if you count all the bonus episodes we've done since launching the Film Spotting family in 2020, plus going back to when we had a Film Spotting app and we'd record additional bonus content, plus who knows what else that for whatever reason didn't quite earn a number. It's actually something like 1,257 episodes. I don't know that anybody needs that much film spotting (laughs) in their lives, but that's what you can have access to if you're a family member, filmspottingfamily.com. You will never come out. You go into those archives, you're just lost. You're there forever. Most of the films I've made are not for children, six years old, from about, they're not safe for children from six to about 60. And after that, it's okay. But uh, uh, I want an, an emotional experience from a film, whether it's to laugh, to cry, or to be frightened. That's what I want from a film, one or all of the others. A clip there from a conversation I had with William Friedkin back in 2013. It was at the Chicago Public Library, the main branch downtown. The occasion was the release of his memoir, The Friedkin Connection. I was honored to be asked to moderate that conversation. And you can hear, even there, just that little bit, what a great raconteur William Friedkin was. I didn't know what I was in for, and I mean that all positively, when I signed up to moderate that Q&A. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. But as we're recording this, the news is fairly fresh. William Friedkin, dead at the age of 87, Almost made it to 88. We share a birthday, August 29th. He was born right here in Chicago in 1935. And I know you disagree on one of these counts, Josh, but as far as I'm concerned and many others, he made two of the best films of the 1970s. Back to back in 71 and 73 gave us The French Connection and The Exorcist combined for 18 Oscar nominations. French Connection, of course, did win Best Picture and Friedkin won Best Director. But there are other great Friedkin films that we can list off, including Sorcerer, which he made with Roy Scheider in 1977, To Live and Die in L.A. with William Peterson in 1985. I love Killer Joe, 2011. That was one of my favorite films of that year. I did notice that Looking at his filmography, especially if you count some of his documentaries, some of the lesser known stuff, he's made over 20 features. I've got some blind spots there, and I probably haven't seen even half of them. But the only big one, the only film that's gotten a lot of acclaim, if you look at his filmography, has mostly positive reviews, is fresh over on Rotten Tomatoes that I haven't seen, is The Boys in the Band. And there's no reason I'd really like to see it. I even saw the one in 2020 that came out, the remake they did for Netflix with Andrew Rannells and Matt Bomer and Jim Parsons. I'd love to see the original, and Friedkin himself was absolutely an original. Yeah, my understanding of his filmography is incomplete as well, though I have knocked off most of the big ones. Probably what I would want to get to next that I haven't, have not seen sorcerer adam and so good i feel like i would also have to see wages of fear first the original the clouseau original just to compare the two Um, but definitely i think that's where i am going to start now that uh, i need to make sure i have a fuller understanding of his career but i think i did review killer joe with you also Mm -hmm. positive on that and i do have to say catching up today on social media with others thoughts and reading what i could 
I highly want to recommend, and thankfully this is still around, on the Dissolve, the late great Dissolve, um, with so many of our friends working on that website when it was live, some of those articles from those years are still available. And Noel Murray wrote a complete comprehensive Mm -hmm. overview of his career and touching on some of those major films as well, but really talking about the very start, you know, working, as you said, in the Chicagoland area in television and on documentaries. He ended up making his debut when he was 27 with the true crime doc, The People versus Paul Crump, that successfully proved a man's innocence who was condemned to die in an Illinois prison. And I think that helped me to understand of the handful of Friedkin films that I have seen a sort of do what you can with what you have sensibility to so many of his films, even on the big studio pictures that perhaps came from that television and that documentary background that persisted, maybe not so much in something like The Exorcist, but I think you definitely can feel it in something like The French Connection, which just has this uh, unpredictability sensibility to it that perhaps comes from those early days in TV and docs. Mm-hmm. After Killer Joe in 2011, he hadn't directed a feature since that film up until this year. He's got the Kane Mutiny Court Martial that's scheduled to premiere at the Venice Film Festival in September. So we've got at least here one more Friedkin film that we can check out. It stars Kiefer Sutherland, Jason Clark, Griffin Dunn, and the late Lance Reddick. I mentioned that interview I played a little bit of audio from. No part of that conversation has ever been heard, or at least been heard here on Film Spotting. I've maybe said some of this here on the show over the years, maybe in the wake of this conversation in 2013, but I had a little bit of an idea what to expect from him having just read that memoir, but I hadn't really ever watched an interview with him, Josh. And Right away, we're in the green room in the back, and someone from Chicago Public Library or some official with the event comes up with just the standard boilerplate contract that's like one page. And all it says is, you agree that we can play the video of this conversation. We're filming it, and we can show it like on public access TV or here at the library. And it was also understood that I was going to get the audio to play it as an episode of Film Spotting. And Friedkin's like, nah, I'm not going to sign that. I don't sign anything without my lawyer. I'm not signing it. Sorry. <laughs> and and he was kind of sorry and he was playful, but he also truly just didn't care yeah. and was totally happy to just be like, nope, not signing it. You worry about it. Yeah. And, yeah. and so I did get a copy of it, but never did share any of it just because of that, because I didn't know if you know we really had to get the clearance or not. I've been thinking it would be a really nice potential bonus show for the film spotting family if if we felt comfortable doing that. If I was in the legal clear, it would be, I think, fun for people to hear it because it really was such a wide-ranging, entertaining conversation. And this is the other part I just want to emphasize. The storyteller that he was. You know me, Josh. I over-prepare for these interviews. I I think about how I'm going to word these questions, and, and I have to have all of it in front of me so then I can react in the moment and go wherever things go. But mm-hmm. I'm going to come prepared, especially looking over the entire body of work. Sure. It's his memoir. So I'm looking at all of his films, at least all the films I've seen, the ones I thought we needed to get to. I've got all these, of course, really thoughtful, specific questions. And from the first question, I get maybe five to 10 words in, he knows where you're going. He's heard all these questions before, or he wants to take it where he wants to go anyway. 
he proceeds. This has still never happened in any type of interview I've ever done, much less a live event. He takes his microphone. He stands up and just starts walking the stage <laughs> like he's a comedian, like he's a stand-up comic, talks for five to ten minutes, gives a five to ten minute story for an answer to my question. Turns out I've just got the best seat in the house. I'm really doing yeah. nothing. Your I just get to watch done. him there on stage. He comes, he sits down. I proceed with my second question. He gets up, does it all over again. <laughs> I maybe got to six questions. I don't know. I'd have to actually go back and look at it, but it didn't seem like I I got to much because he knew what he wanted to say. He had these great stories to tell from his long career and these great films he's made and some of the not so great films that he made. I'll always cherish that I had that opportunity. And we will link to that Noel Murray dissolve piece in our show notes over at filmspotting.net. We're going to get into some listener feedback now. This is something that we were lamenting recently. Speaking of the Film Spotting Advisory Board, we were talking about how even though we still feel like week to week, we get to incorporate our listeners and their thoughts in a lot of different ways, especially Massacre Theater and the poll questions. We don't devote as much time as we used to, where it was a consistent segment of the show where we would dive into the mailbag and respond to top five thoughts, respond sometimes to corrections, respond to reactions to our reviews. And we thought it's a little bit of an odd week for us. There wasn't an obvious film to talk about. And some of this feedback's been building up. I think, Josh, that Mr. Friedkin would actually appreciate the fact, being the cheeky fellow that he is, he would appreciate that we're going to go from this tribute to him, this loving tribute to him, and segue into some feedback about our recent top five jump scares just last week's show. And the feedback is in relation to a film I know for a fact he loathes. Mm. Exorcist 3, I think you may Exorcist, be referring to. Exorcist 3. We did our top five jump scares, and we've got three comments here, Josh. You can take all three of them. They're all short. But these three were not the only listeners who wrote in expressing this sentiment. We first will hear from Tony Yambrick. I know this is more of a highbrow show. Uh, Tony, I take that personally. <laughs> but have either of you seen Exorcist 3? The hospital scene should have at least been mentioned. Here's Jason James Shuba on Instagram. Exclusion of the Shears scene from Exorcist 3 is a huge miss. We also heard from Andrew Cash on Facebook. You missed the undisputed greatest jump scare of all time, The Exorcist 3. So have you seen The Exorcist 3, Josh? I haven't even seen The Exorcist 2, No, Adam. I haven't either. So I haven't either. We're really disappointing people here. I guess. Now, when I first started to see thoughts about The Exorcist 3 in anticipation of our list and then in the aftermath, I actually thought until I read that comment on Instagram, on the film spotting Instagram, that outlined that it was the sheer scene, I just assumed it was the infamous scene of the granny, the granny in the hospital who's crawling on the ceiling over the top of George C. Scott. Now, I've never seen The Exorcist 3, but I've seen that clip. I'm familiar with it. There is something just inherently creepy about this very elderly woman crawling on the ceiling. It's it's spooky as hell. But it's I didn't unusual. really think that was yeah, I didn't think that was maybe a jump scare. Again, I don't know the scene very well, but I wasn't sure that it even counted as a jump scare. And because I've never seen the entire film, I didn't consider it at all. Turns out, after getting more responses like this, 
This really is a very, very famous jump scare. Slash Film did an article called The Best Scene in The Exorcist 3 Makes a Strong Case for Jump Scares because they're acknowledging that sometimes it can feel like a bit of a cheap tactic or it can be regarded that way. And this is the scene. They break it all down. I watched it today. It's a little over a minute long. And you can see what the filmmakers are doing, the technique where it's a static shot in the hallway of this hospital and nurses and people are coming and going. And so you do, like a lot of the scenes we talked about, Josh, you get lulled into a certain complacency thinking, well, nothing's going to happen out of the ordinary here. And just like that, okay. this, this yes. figure appears. Yes. This figure appears with a big with a big pair of scissors, a big pair of shears. So in the stream of suggestions that we got, now that you're describing it, I've not watched that clip, but I did see that pop up in a GIF a couple of times. So I'm glad we went through this so that I could place that. And yep. our apologies to all Exorcist 3 fans. And our apologies to them, but also William Friedkin for bringing up a film that I know he's not a fan of. He's not a fan of either of the sequels, according at least to a video I saw on Facebook or Instagram recently. He was he was pretty harsh, okay. Josh, though I don't think he's ever seen them himself. That didn't matter. He was he just, just offended, offended that they got the very made. idea. Got it. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Some Oppenheimer thoughts from our Barbenheimer conversation that took place back on episode 929. Here's Bryce Maloney in Toronto. Concerning the review of Oppenheimer, I'm team Josh on this one. Despite the thematic relevance it might have had or the intellectual appeal it held for some, the political fortunes of Strauss did not ignite much interest for me as a visceral film-going experience. Okay, we'll just we'll just move on, Bryce, because that's fine. You guys can both be wrong. Concerning Adam's comment about listeners asking, why didn't you talk about such and such? Well, how can you review a Nolan film and not discuss the cinematic flourishes? Raindrops hitting the water that look like shockwaves on Earth, seen from space, the quickening thunder of the audience's stomping feet that sounded like a locomotive leaving a station that can't be stopped, the magical realism of putting Tatlock's naked body on Oppenheimer during his board hearing, or of putting him in the cockpit of a plane, watching the V-2 rockets flying towards England. These brilliant motifs kept me, and I'm sure many others, engaged in what otherwise might have been, at times, a slightly fatiguing procedural. So let's just take that last part there, Josh. I don't know for sure if Bryce is asking us, actually, why didn't we talk about those cinematic flourishes, or it's more of a rhetorical device to set up that he wanted to provide that list of cinematic flourishes. But that's actually a really good example of what I mean when sometimes people write in and say, yeah, how couldn't you have acknowledged all those things? And we don't sometimes, I'm just speaking obviously for myself here, you can feel free to disagree, but while all those moments, of course, stood out and did have an impact on me as a viewer, I kind of feel like all I had to say about them was I was going to list them off and go, wasn't that cool? <laughs> and and it was more it was more interesting to me, I guess, to talk about some of those things. I talked about the raindrops and the glass and and seeing patterns in the cosmic. So I did touch on it, but for me it was it was part of the bigger picture of the overall formal approach of the movie, the nonlinear structure, all of those elements was really what I chose to focus on. Well, well, I'm very happy to have Bryce on the correct side of the opinion regarding the Strauss sequences. I do have to support you here, Adam. You did touch, I remember you talking about 
the raindrops and so forth, which are visual items. And it's true, Bryce, we didn't hit all of those specific examples of cinematic flourishes as you describe them. So that's accurate, but that's also why I did want to make sure we paid attention to the Trinity sequence, because for me, that Mm -hmm. was the most extravagant example and effective example of Nolan applying cinema to communicate the themes and ideas he was interested in. So yeah, I think this is a good example, as you're saying, Adam, of even if we're going to touch on this area of a film, we may not always be able to get every detail that stood out to every viewer independently, but we're trying to cover it as best as we can. Yeah. And we are trying to, more often than not, we're trying to I should say always, whether we succeed or not is up for debate. We're trying to add to the conversation. And if I don't have really anything to add, then maybe just acknowledging those things isn't something we feel obliged to do. It is funny, though, you mentioned that sequence. Another example where we did, especially you, you brought it up and really gave it some time, get into one of those key visual sequences. But we actually didn't talk about my favorite part of that scene, which here again, it may seem in some ways like just a a flourish. But that choice by Nolan to have the sound cut out completely when the bomb detonates and we see through Oppenheimer's eyes and others, we see the, the smoke and fire and we see how big and awesome and terrible that is. We don't hear it for something like 20 seconds. And it doesn't take us long. I wasn't much of a science guy, Josh, but I got the gist of it, that it took that long for the sound of it to actually get to the people watching it. It's one of those moments that it, as the sound goes out, it, it focuses you even more. It kind of literally takes your breath away for a moment. It's very effective, but also Nolan doing what he does best, giving you an effective bravura moment like that, but also being really all about the details and authenticity. You know, he wasn't he wasn't going to fake that. He wasn't going to have it be this huge explosion and try to, sorry, or pardon the pun here, blow us away with the sound of it. He was going to have it build and he was going to do it the right way. He was going to do it the way it would have been for those people watching. It might be, it probably isn't, but it feels like this. The only moment we don't have that Ludwig Göransson score or some mm-hmm. element of it in the background of a scene, if not at the foreground of a scene, that might be the only moment where we hear no music whatsoever and it's all the more powerful for it. Yeah. Why don't we actually go then, we'll jump ahead with that nice transition, Josh, to this next email from Mark Friedman and we can come back to what Nate has to say. This is a longer one, Josh, so we'll just kind of paraphrase the overall question that he has or the details here, and then we can get to some of the specifics. But Mark saw Oppenheimer on two different screens and has no qualms about the picture quality he saw in either instance. But the sound was something on one of the screens or in one of the theaters that he did have an issue with. And he basically said that he felt like he could not decipher More than about 30% of the dialogue and his wife sitting there with him had the exact same experience. And he knows this is an issue with Nolan. It's something that really kind of came to a head with Tenet. That was the first time where I really had that experience, at least with a Nolan film in a theater. That all begs a few questions here for Mark. 
I know I'm asking a question you can't answer because you didn't share my experiences, but I'm throwing it out there in the event you also had issue with the sound at Oppenheimer, wherever you might have screened it, and whether this issue needs to be aired as a Nolan issue or perhaps part of a larger discussion of a 21st century movie-watching issue. We are in an age when the technical specs of films are so advanced and fine-tuned that it becomes increasingly difficult to control the viewing experience. This is true for both the in-theater and at-home experience, where the array of quality in HD screens and home audio systems, and especially the erosion in quality in condensed streaming, conspire to give home viewers a compromised experience. Thanks for reading, and thank you for your years of generating the very best film discussion on the internet. Well, what say you, Josh? Did you have any trouble deciphering the dialogue of Oppenheimer, and did it affect your experience at all? It's funny because I'm with you on it being a problem in Tenet, a huge problem. For mm-hmm. me, I think The Dark Knight Rises is where I probably first noticed it. And Oppenheimer was fine for me, for whatever the reason. I've only seen it once in one theater that, as far as I know, usually has pretty good sound. And this was an instance where I was not struggling at all. Now, you saw it separately from me somewhere else. How was it for you? It was fine. It obviously did not impact my experience overall because I loved the film. Didn't really feel like I missed anything. I remember overall feeling like it wasn't the same as it was with Tenet. If I had to put a number on it, I felt like I got 90% or 95% of the dialogue. But that still means there was a 5 or 10%, Josh, where I was sitting in my seat thinking, I'm really loving this. I can't wait till I can watch it at home with the subtitles on. I was thinking that just because I wanted to pick up those other lines of dialogue that I wasn't quite grasping. And I thought, well, that could be my issue, too. That could be just my ears. But I was also very much aware that that score and Mark says this, he calls it a bombastic score. It's certainly omnipresent. Yes. And so he wondered whether or not it was, in Mark's words, stomping on the words. He also wonders if it was perhaps due to the fact that Killian Murphy's portrayal of Oppenheimer was that of a low talker. Yeah, it could have been that as well. But I did want to throw out that just in the past couple of days since this email came in, and it's possible Mark has already seen this and feels like he's got the answer to his question. I saw an article pop up on one of the social media platforms that directly addresses this, Josh. And it turns out, and this makes so much sense. It makes so much sense that this is the issue. And it also makes sense that Nolan would approach it this way. Going back to what I was just saying about his emphasis on authenticity. He does not do any ADR. He refuses to ask actors. And I think people might be surprised. I don't know what the percentage is. I'm sure we've got some production people out there who could write in and say what the percentage of dialogue that's been redone by an actor in a studio later is on the average Hollywood film. So maybe I shouldn't say people would be surprised because I don't know the number, but I know I know that it's not an insignificant amount. Nolan refuses to do it, and his reason seems pretty sound to me, which is you've worked so hard to provide the environment, to have the actor give that honest performance in that moment, and now you're going to say, well, yeah, just just come to the studio here on Tuesday, six months after we filmed that or whatever, and and give it to us again. Just give us the line reading again. You're sitting in a booth or whatever. 
nothing about that is the same as it was when you shot it the first time. And he's like, I want to go with the, the take I got <laughs> that's in the film. And I need that to be the moment that people hear, even if they don't quite get everything that's being said. That is the compromise. The compromise is we maybe overall get a better performance, but depending on what movie theater you're in, depending on what the sound is like overall, depending on how good your hearing is and maybe how good you are at reading lips, everyone's going to have a little bit of a different experience when it comes to how much of the dialogue you actually process. So this is fascinating because Joe George, who writes on occasion for me over at Think Christian and also shows up on the podcast from time to time, he just wrote an article all about this, a little bit more from the critical interpretive aspect of this critique of Nolan's films and defends it basically from an artistic point of view, saying how it helps him appreciate what his movies are trying to do. Uh, he gets into Christopher Nolan's wordless humanism is what he talks about. So yeah, as an addendum to this, we'll link to Joe George's piece as well over at Den of Geek. It's pretty fascinating if you're interested in this topic. Let's move on to some other feedback we got in relation to a recent top five list, episode 927, our top five actor-director duos. Here's Dylan Haas. I kept expecting to hear one of you mention Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg. They didn't come up at all. Is that right? No, they didn't. Not even in the honorable mentions. And we're both fans, big fans of Shaun of the Dead. I think we're both reasonably fans of Hot Fuzz. Mm -hmm. I liked the world's end more than you. Yeah, much more than me. But I believe I'm still positive on it. But maybe that's why I mm -hmm. didn't bump them higher up on my list of considered pairings. Yeah, they just really didn't make my initial cut, even though as I... Just said, I'm a fan of those films and overall a fan of Peg's performances. Here's a tough one, or at least it's tough, Josh, in that it exposes the both of us, which these top five lists sometimes do. It's also going to expose probably some bad pronunciation on my part, and I apologize for that. Here's Richard, who wrote in and said, Tao Zhao and Jia Zhanka. He lists the films. Platform 2000. Unknown Pleasures, 2002, The World, 04, Still Life, 2006, 24 City, 2008, A Touch of Sin, 2013, Mountains May Depart, 2015, and Ash is Purest White, 2018. Not only is Tao Zhao in all of these movies, she is central to all of them. Moreover, Zhangka does not have a long list of non-documentary movies in which Tao Zhao does not appear, nor does Zhao often work with other directors, confirming the professional importance of each to the other. Try applying those criteria to your 10 choices and see if you can replicate that level of integral collaboration. I'll wait. Oh, and their movies are also really good. They are at least the two that I've seen, Richard. So right. I deeply apologize for that. A Touch of Sin and Ashes, Purest White, both of which I loved, are enough to prompt me to wish I had seen many more of these. And if that was the case, probably they might have been able to crack my list. Ashes Pierce White was part of a marathon, was it not? That or Touch of Sin? I forget which marathon it or was, both? but possibly, possibly. Maybe, maybe both. I can't quite recall. Definitely aware of that pairing, but way too many blind spots there, Richard. We, we apologize. I think you certainly made your point, though, when it comes to looking at those films they've made Considering the importance of that 
performer to that director, hard to say that they didn't deserve a mention. And we hope we're remedying that somewhat here in listener feedback. We also got this one, Josh, from Sandy Lucas. We heard this from a few people like Sandy before we even did the list. And we got a few of those comments afterwards on social media about these two. Surely you're already considering David Cronenberg and Viggo Mortensen, but I couldn't take the chance. Yeah, saw this email, Sandy, and generally love both David Cronenberg and Viggo Mortensen and certainly love A History of Violence, my favorite film of its year 2005. I like Eastern Promises quite a bit, but then we just take a huge drop when it comes for me. I know I'm in a bit of a minority on this, but we drop off when we get to a dangerous method. So for me, I just I just couldn't put them ahead of some others, Josh. Yeah, it was an issue of diminishing returns for me as well, which is probably only going to anger Sandy more <laughs> than give her any sort of explanation she mm-hmm. likes. But I'm with you. History of violence, so great. Eastern promises, very interesting. And dangerous method I did not really go for. And crimes of the future, I'm afraid, left me a little wanting as well. So sorry about that, Sandy. Going to have to leave that pairing to you. Yeah, four films where one of them I don't care for and one of them I haven't seen. That's just on me, Crimes of the Future. I knew they weren't going to make the cut. We appreciate all the feedback we got, and we appreciate all the questions that we get, Josh. We've had this kind of open Ask Us Anything Google form. You can find it in the show notes for this episode, for any recent episode on the podcast platform you're listening on or on our website. And we get really in-depth on some of these questions in our Film Spotting Family monthly bonus shows, but there were a few here that I thought were appropriate for this conversation. Why don't you kick us off with an email addressed to Grandpa Josh, so you knew I was going to pick it, from (laughs) Grandpa Brian Monroe. All right, here's Brian, fellow listener here who is also keen to preserve his hearing. On a recent episode, you mentioned a specialized type of earplugs. Would you mind sharing the product specifics? I'm very interested in purchasing some, especially after feeling like my eardrums were on the verge of bursting during Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning. Longtime listener, love the show. Keep up the great work. Yeah, that's that's Gramps, Brian <laughs> Monroe. Non-paid partnership here. Non-paid promotion. I know. I mean, should I hold out? Should should I hold this product Maybe. hostage? I'm sure. I'm sure this would be nah, really come lucrative on. for us. Give it so. Give it to our listening audience. Again, this was a recommendation from my daughter's friend who works concerts on stage at concerts, and so obviously she's looking for something like this and using it all the time. So she recommended Loop earplugs and ordered some. They're fairly inexpensive. Fairly simple, tested them, Brian, actually tested them at my Dead Reckoning screening. Here's the report. Definitely glad I did it. Noticed dialogue was fine. Sound effects were fine. I did notice that when the score, which I heard okay, really should have been amping you up, like getting your heart pumping, it was a little more muffled than you might like. So you get a little lost there. But I'll take it because I'll tell you this, as I was walking out of the theater towards the end of the credits, so the score is still playing, I thought, I'm just going to take one of these out and see how much of a difference this has made. Took one out and I felt like I'd been punched in the head. It was amped (laughs) up so loud. So I am all on board. The way I'm doing it is 
I'm going in and giving the movies a bit of a chance first. I'm definitely putting them in for whatever that, you know, Dolby demonstration nonsense you're assaulted with every time. They're they're plugged in till that's done because that's what pushed me this far, to be honest with you, more than the movies. So mm-hmm. I put them in, then I take them out. For example, Oppenheimer, we've been discussing sound. I left them out for Oppenheimer. I did not find, despite, you know, people having complaints about the score there and in other Nolan films that did not bother me at all. Left them out. As a matter of fact, went to the Beyonce concert, brought them, had them in my pocket, didn't need them. It was fine. So I think it's just a nice option to have. You're not a grandpa. Well, you know, grandpas can go to see Beyonce. I think it's a nice option to have. Basically. I'm glad I've got that. I'm glad I wore it for dead reckoning. And I think I'm just going to go, especially with, to our other message to other email, you know, with theaters having varying types of sound systems. um, I think it's nice to have that in your pocket. I'm not looking for you to get all scientific here, Josh, which I don't expect that you even could in this case, but just briefly, is there anything special about these earplugs when it comes to movies or are they just good earplugs? I think they're meant for concerts. Like when they're they're marketed as to wear to concerts, to okay. live shows. So I think I'm trailblazing the movie arena. <laughs> this is probably a whole new stream yeah. of revenue Loop could have if they just connected with us as a show. They would see sales skyrocket because I think there's probably a lot of moviegoers who feel this way. I wear earplugs when on those few occasions every year I practice with my band and I play with my band because playing with my band in a basement as a junior high and high school kid, or I should say our guitarist basement and not having proper protection for my ears is why now I get to go to bed every night with a loud ringing Mm -hmm. in my Mm -hmm. left ear. So I'm a little late to the game. Earplugs are helpful. I don't know that I feel the need just yet to bring them to the theater with me. Okay. That would be too far. Give me another year or two. You can play your grandpa rock. But whatever <laughs> you do, don't bring them into the theater. I mean, you're calling Motley Crue Grandpa Rock? Yeah, Sorry. that's probably fair. Great Grandpa. <laughs> Here's Mark Chaplin. Now we're getting into the, the really important stuff. Hi, Film Spotting team. On a recent episode, Josh admitted to being a salty snack person, often preferring them to the sweeter side of things. Do either of you like to snack while watching a film? If so, what are your preferred snacks and do they differentiate from when you're at home versus when you're in a theater? And do you find that snacking distracts you from the note-taking process and ability to concentrate? Or does munching help distract the part of your brain that may wander, allowing the rest of it to focus on the film in front of you? Does it depend on the movie? Finally, have you ever (laughs) salted your popcorn with tears? Thanks for the openness and honesty on these recent Ask Us Anything segments and for your continued thoughtful analysis and discussions on the show. And hey, Mark says he looks forward to reading Fear Not. It has probably by now, Josh, arrived in his mailbox. Excellent. Thank you so much, Mark. And funnily enough, I was giving an interview uh, to a site called Cinema Sugar about the book. And one of the questions they asked had to do with this. Basically, what do you eat? When you go to theaters and the truth is, Adam, you know, this, you've been to enough screenings and other showings with me. Generally, I don't get anything. I Mm -hmm. really don't, unless I'm with my family, they're big on the snacks and then I'll devour the popcorn salty. Love it. Will not stop. If it, it'll, it doesn't matter how big the bucket is, I'm going to finish it. So maybe that's why I try not to otherwise, but my go-to choice, honestly, I'd, I'd love to have a beer. I'd rather have a beer. That's yeah. that's my snack if I'm going to choose. I'd rather choose. drink too. 
<laughs> I would. I tend if they're to serving not... cocktails, I will cocktails. get one. You're more of a cocktail man. That will man. be my choice. Yeah. yeah. I tend not to do that if I'm, you know, quote unquote working. But if I'm seeing something a second time or just out with the family, I'll go beer, they'll go popcorn, and I'll steal some of that. I am way more of a sweets person and chocolate person than a salty person. And I've known lots of people like you, Josh, in my life. My former Grinnell roommate, one of my good friends still, is one of those guys who his snack was always, you know, if he was doing some homework in our room late at night, he was eating pretzels or some kind of bag of chips. It was always some kind of chips, whereas I always wanted or would always lean towards a candy bar or ice cream or cake or something like that. But for me, when it comes to going to the theater, I can maybe count the number of times I've bought candy at a movie theater on one hand. I, I want popcorn. I'm at a movie. I want popcorn. I love popcorn. And especially lately, I've been taking my kids to a lot of movies with me and they always want some kind of treat. So that'll be my excuse then to get popcorn sure. for all of us. You know, then, uh, then I'm just being a good dad exactly. and buying popcorn. And then I'm inhaling three quarters of it, if not more. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a popcorn guy. I don't know that I've ever salted my popcorn with tears. It gets <laughs> it gets a little dusty in some theaters. I don't normally fall into just open weeping into my popcorn. But yeah, after after a good drink, popcorn is definitely high on the list. This last question comes to us from Ethan Johnson. And this will be our segue into the tease from earlier about the personal and professional news. I thought it did set it up nicely. Ethan says, Adam, we hear about Josh's day job at Think Christian, but do you have a day job? Would being funded solely by film spotting ever be in the future? Well, there's there's a lot to dive into there, Josh. Let's maybe take the, the last part first. I think both of us would probably, no, we would definitely love it if if film spotting produced enough revenue that it covered our expenses and covered a salary and covered all those other things that come with a full-time job and the benefits and we could do this full-time now there's a big asterisk there which is i know you quite like the job you have it's this not like true. you're going into the salt mines every day no, and you can't wait all. to get out and similarly for me and this is the announcement I'll get to here in a moment. I don't know, even if even if that happened, even if enough money was rolling in that we could do that, I wouldn't change from the job that I'm about to embark on because it's something I've always wanted to do. And my intention is to do both until whenever I stop working, if that day actually comes. So yeah, we would like to make more money. We'd like to have the film spotting family membership grow. That's the lifeblood of the show. And we do have advertising, but the family membership is really what keeps us going. So that's why we talk about it a fair amount. We hope we will continue to grow there and continue to grow as a business so we can keep doing this show for as long as we want to do it. In terms of the day job, and that term, I know you use it, Josh, but you use it the same way I think about it, where it's not like maybe most people say it, where it really is just that thing you do from nine to five that kind of makes you miserable and you really want to be doing something else. I've never talked about here on the show what I did 
every day for 20 years. And that was because I kept them very separate. And because I also didn't want necessarily someone to take it the wrong way and think I was like, oh yeah, that's just what I do to pay the bills. Don't care about it. No, I loved it. I got to do something that was a dream job for me for 20 years. I got to work for a professional sports team. I started as a web producer for the Chicago Blackhawks. It's what made me move at the time with just one kid and a wife to Chicago from Iowa City. Ended up being a vice president there of marketing and content. And I got to merge my passions. I was always into sports. I always thought it would be cool to work for a front office, but I also wanted to make cool content. I wanted to write stories and do interviews. And I wanted to make videos and make films. And I got to edit and produce books. And I got to be a producer on two championship, you know, Stanley Cup movies. So I got to kind of combine all my passions for 20 years with the Blackhawks. But yeah, Ethan's right. I I never really talked about it. I always wanted to keep those things separate. It was a very demanding job. It was an always on job. I really was for all these years. I really was fitting in film spotting in the nooks and crannies of my time. Any any extra bit of time I had late at night watching movies whenever it was, that's when I would get ready for the show because otherwise I had to devote my energy to that job. But I have left that job and I'm now going to be teaching full-time. I've touched on this a little bit because I've dipped my toe in the teaching waters, but starting this fall, I'll be teaching full-time as a professor at the University of Iowa and I'll be split between journalism and sport management. I'll get to teach two podcasting classes here starting this fall. And not only did I always want to do something film related, and I always thought it'd be cool to work for a sports team, but within about two or three months of stepping on Grinnell's campus as an undergrad, I thought, I really want to be a professor. I just want to be on a college campus. I want to come to work every day on a college campus and be in this type of environment. I always want to be around people who are learning and creative. Now, I thought I wanted to be an English professor, and it took me about a year and a half to realize, oh, I'm not cut out for that. I will never get a PhD in English and teach English at the college level. But that doesn't mean I couldn't teach something else someday. And I've now had that opportunity to take this professional experience, both film spotting and with the Blackhawks and translate that into a full-time teaching job. So some personal news related to that, the family is moving. This is why I'm taking a couple of weeks off from the show here coming up and Michael Phillips is going to sit in and Mariah Gates is going to sit in. We're going back to Iowa City and I'll be a professor. And I'm so excited for you. I mean, we're going to miss you in Chicago, obviously, not just doing the show stuff together, but a chance to get together with Sarah and Debbie and do things like that. But just thrilled for you because I think from the first time I met you, I could tell you had that professor ambition, drive, interest. Mm -hmm. I remember, I think you were teaching at the University of Chicago Graham School classes when I first started, right? right? You were still doing those film classes. And I could see how much enthusiasm you had for those and how much passion you had for being in that environment. So I can't imagine being on a campus and getting to live that, as you say, full time. It's one of those instances, I think we've both had this for most of our careers, where we've been fortunate to almost always be doing some sort of job we've enjoyed but always also pursuing something passionately alongside that. 
And that is a gift to be able to do that, but it can be exhausting as well. And so I know how exhausting the Blackhawks job was for you as much as you liked it while trying to do the show. I mean, you didn't even mention the travel that was involved no, with that no, incredible I was gone a lot. amounts of travel, which is hard for the family, of course, but also hard for producing a weekly show. And so this will not have that aspect of it, but you'll also be there in the classroom. You'll be on a campus. You'll be doing what you love and you'll be doing it well. I am quite confident of that. Thank you. And maybe most importantly, we'll see. you'll still be doing the show. So that's, that's what right. I'm that's what I'm most worried about. And I'm relieved to hear that that's gonna be able to continue and hopefully be something that, yeah, will will meld a little more closely to your day-to-day nine to five work. And in that way, you won't be, you know, spread quite as thin as you were for what, as many years as the show has been around, right? Yeah, you mentioned it, but I should probably address it head on because there's certainly some people out there that are thinking, Adam, I'm really happy for you, but what does this mean for the future of the show? (laughs) Is film spotting in peril or is film spotting going away? No, no, not at all. I wouldn't be making this move and I wouldn't be as excited as I am if it didn't mean status quo when it came to film spotting. One of the things that happened, the only silver lining of COVID for us was we went from recording the show every week at the WBEZ studios in Chicago face-to-face and thinking to ourselves, well, we could never do the show if we weren't in the same room together. The, the chemistry is all about us feeding off each other there live in the room. Well, we had to adjust like a lot of people and a lot of businesses. We had to adjust and we had to get used to recording shows, looking at each other over some kind of video platform, some kind of video screen. And what we found is, no, we can pull this off. (laughs) We think we're pretty Mm -hmm. good at it and we don't actually need to go back, nor do we want to go back. So we're already recording the show remotely. It gives us a lot of flexibility in terms of the movies themselves. We're already a show that primarily focuses on reviewing films the week after they open anyway. The only change will be there's going to be some big films that open that in the past we drop a review on the Friday that it opens because we could, if we were lucky, both get to the advanced screenings. I'm going to be in a city that may not have those advanced screenings like Chicago can offer. But again, this show has always been about getting in a little bit deeper, getting into more details and specifics. And we want people to have already had a chance to see the movies before they listen to our conversation. It's not so much in our case of being the thumbs up or thumbs down saying you got to go spend your money Mm -hmm. this weekend at the box office or not. So it really should not change anything fundamental about the show. If I had said anything, Josh, if we hadn't talked about it here with this announcement, I feel very confident saying no one would even know anything was different. It's just going to be the show as you're used to it every week. There is one more just little bit of personal news I want to piggyback on top of this because We don't get into a lot of personal stuff on the show, even though I don't think we shy away from it. It's not like we're afraid to talk about this stuff, but it it might take us on some detours away from the the movie content that we like to focus on. But when there are big changes in our lives, I've always addressed them here on the show. So this won't come as a shock to a lot of listeners, I think, because it actually came up a couple episodes ago. And if you remember my conversation with Koganada, I mentioned something about having two foster 
children at home during COVID when we were playing trivia spotting. Sometimes Olivia would appear on camera and people who were playing trivia spotting got to see her. But I haven't formally made the announcement, so I just want to throw it out here. Back in 2020, Sarah and I decided to get licensed as foster parents. We certainly were not looking to adopt or add any more children. I already had four kids. <laughs> we we did want to help families that needed it, help babies especially who needed it. With Sarah's nursing background, we thought we could help babies who may have medical needs. And within a week of getting our license done, we got a call about the seven-month-old girl with vision impairment. Would we take her in? And we said, yes. And we're now here three years later. And not only is she still with us, but she is officially a Kempenar. I, I can now say here on the show, because of certain rules and regulations around foster children and what you're allowed to get into in any kind of public space, I haven't been able to get into some of the details, but I can now because she's Olivia Kempenar. She's she's our baby, and it's been such a wonderful addition to our family. We do have another one at home. We have a little boy who's one and a half, and that's a case where I can't say too much more about it, but I've gone in the past three years from, from just having four at home to having six kids at home, including two young children. Wouldn't trade it, wouldn't change anything. Again, not what I planned, but has worked out so great for all of us. So that was something I felt, Josh, as I'm getting into some big life-changing news. I felt like I had to come clean with our audience that, uh, yeah, I've got two babies at home. If only the film spotting family, you know, the membership supporting group grew as quickly as your literal film spotting family, Adam, that, that would be really quite something. But Olivia's a exactly. sweetheart. Those kids are so wonderful. And I love seeing how not just you and Sarah, but your entire family wholeheartedly embraces them and loves mm -hmm. having them. This is something that's hard for me to fathom, obviously, as you know, a man with only two children. <laughs> and so to see how a family makes this work and does it so lovingly is quite something. And I imagine that's going to be a huge part of the move to Iowa, right? Because you both have family members there who can yes. come around these kids as well and be more of a supporting network. So it is really going to be a great thing for all you guys. Thank you, Josh, for that. Thank you to our listeners for indulging me with those announcements. And we will encourage everyone, as we always do, to send us any comments they have about the show. Feedback at filmspotting.net. I didn't kill my wife. I don't care. Pretty good line reading there from Tommy Lee Jones in 1993's The Fugitive. Okay. I mean, maybe, maybe a little bit better than my rendition last week on the show, Josh. <laughs> A little bit. I don't know. He did win a Best Supporting Actor Oscar for his work in the surprisingly, at the time anyway, critically acclaimed film directed by Andrew Davis, nominated for seven Oscars, including Best Picture. I've said it before. I'm going to say it one last time. I am still jealous that you're going to be doing this with Michael Phillips. You'll be talking about The Fugitive at 30 next week without me. Have you rewatched it yet? No, I have to get to it yet. I'm very excited to do so. Have not seen it since that initial release. And yeah, it's been too long, too long since Michael's been on the show. So that is going to be great. The two of us will also have results from the current film spotting poll. This one, difficult birth. 
for producer Sam getting this yeah. poll out there. But we did end up asking, who are your favorite 90s action movie adversaries? We spent a fair amount of time on last show getting into the caveats. So we're going to set that aside for now. Just tell you the options. Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones in The Fugitive. Keanu Reeves and Patrick Swayze in Point Break. Keanu and Dennis Hopper in Speed. Jean Reno and Gary Oldman in Leon, The Professional. Or Clint Eastwood and John Malkovich in In the Line of Fire. You can vote in that deeply flawed poll and also leave a comment at filmspotting.net. And your vote could matter. It may not matter when it comes to who's going to win the poll. There is a duo that's running away with that, Josh. But second, third, and fourth are separated by a total of three votes. So jump in to that film spotting poll now over at filmspotting.net. This week on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, it's part two of their fantasy women pairing. They have already talked about 2007's Enchanted with Amy Adams. Now they are getting to Greta Gerwig's Behemoth, the box office juggernaut that is Barbie. The Next Picture Show is a podcast that looks at cinema's present via its past. If you're not subscribed, we don't know why you're not listening. It's hosted by Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky, and they post new episodes every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. We, last week, Josh, announced that we were giving away two digital movies, two all-timers. Well, I know one of them's an all-timer because one of them's in the film spotting pantheon, and that's Rio Bravo. The other one is really embarrassingly a blind spot for me. I have still not seen James Dean in East of Eden, but that film and Rio Bravo starring, of course, John Wayne now available for the first time in crystal clear 4k ultra HD. You can look for them on 4k ultra HD and digital. And we are giving that pair of movies away as a digital set. All you have to do is email us, put Rio Bravo in the subject line, and you got to pick a supporting performance from Rio Bravo, that you absolutely under no condition would eliminate or cast another performer in the place of the performer who graces that Howard Hawks Western. Give us one. Praise Ricky Nelson. You can do that if you want. All right, let's play a little Massacre Theater. It's the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance to win a film spotting T-shirt. A couple of weeks back, we massacred this scene. Do you recall what Clemenceau once said about war? Uh, no, I didn't think I knew that. No. He said war was too important to be left to the generals. When he said that, 50 years ago, he might have been right. But today, war is too important to be left to politicians. They have neither the time, the training, or the inclination for strategic thought. I can no longer sit back and allow communist infiltration, communist indoctrination, communist subversion, and the international communist conspiracy to sap and impurify all of our precious bodily fluids. That was Sterling Hayden with Peter Sellers in 1964's Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Written by Terry Southern and Stanley Kubrick, adapted from the novel Red Alert by Peter George and directed by Kubrick. Sam clearly wanted to overcorrect 
after the debacle that was Michael Almereda's Hamlet. Our previous Massacre Theater selection were basically, if you entered, you had about a 20% chance of winning. This is true. Brimming film spotting hat. Brimming film spotting hat this week. And so much great feedback, too. So many people pointing out connections. Some, of course, we thought of, and some we probably did not think of. Here's Rob in Gaithersburg, Maryland. On a broad level, it shares with Oppenheimer an interest in the destructive potential of nuclear weapons, as well as the deeply flawed systems that produce and deploy those weapons. To stretch things a bit farther, Strangelove also shares with Barbie an interest in how male insecurity underpins much of what's wrong with the world. Here's Dr. Troy Kozak, or How I Stopped Worrying and Learned to Love Barbenheimer. Troy expands on this idea. Your choice of Dr. Strangelove for this week's show was particularly apt. Not only does this particular scene deal with General Turgidson's communist paranoia, but also his contempt for politics, which both play a significant role in Oppenheimer. Both this scene and the later parts of Oppenheimer deal with the question of who is in charge of the accolades and the blame for the war. However, the masterstroke in this selection is Turgidson's additional paranoia that women can drain men of their essence. The backlash to the Barbie movie has a lot of men like Turgidson fearful as they see their masculinity dwindle into so much cigar smoke. I'll also point out the connection that Gerwig sets an homage to Kubrick in Barbie's opening scene. The only missing connection would be Barbie recapturing her flat feet, slipping on her iconic heels, and proclaiming that she could walk. <laughs> yeah, we didn't get that in Gerwig's Barbie. Dave Allen in Bonnie Lake, Washington writes, I think the only time I've ever heard the name Clemenceau is in Sterling Hayden's perfect rant in Dr. Strangelove, so this one was easy. Aside from the obvious bomb tie-in, I think the most fun connection is that in Strangelove, the same actor played multiple characters, but in Barbie, multiple actors played the same character. Aha. Uh -huh. Here's a thought from John Doherty in Asheville, North Carolina. This is my first time ever writing in, but I could not resist the provocation of your massacre of the greatest film ever made. Episode tie-ins include the obvious nuclear apocalypse relevance to Oppenheimer, plus the Barbie teaser trailers frame-by-frame -frame homage to Kubrick's 2001. For future massacre theaters, I suggest you guys switch to drinking rainwater to preserve your purity of essence. I, for one, have never seen a commie drink a glass of tap water. I haven't either, John. Bob Hovey in Columbus, Georgia, says, My daughter and I listened to this week's episode, and it didn't take long for this child of the 1950s to recognize one of his favorite anti-war satires. My daughter didn't guess the film, but she did mention how much Josh sounded like David Lynch doing FDR. Okay. Needless to say, when Adam voiced a similar opinion a few minutes later, we both sprayed mouthfuls of Dr. Pepper all over <laughs> each other. As for the tie-ins, there's the obvious nuclear weapons thing, the 2001 homage, being inspired by Kubrick. Oh, wait, wasn't David Lynch in The Fablements with Judd Hirsch, who starred in Taxi with Danny DeVito, who's married to Rhea Perlman, who played Ruth Handler in Barbie? I think you're right uh -huh. on all fronts, and now we're playing... Six Degrees of David Lynch. Nice job, Bob. Here's Drew from New York City. I suspect Josh used a David Lynch as FDR voice because Lynch made the other great piece of 21st century art regarding the atomic bomb, episode eight of Twin Peaks, The Return. That was what you were doing, right? Sure. All intentional. Yep. Finally, Eric Grote in Westchester, PA says, Will Ferrell's CEO character sits around a circular table full of men making decisions in one film. Oh. While Peter Sellers, yeah, this is a good one. Peter Sellers' president sits around a circular table in the war room where there is no fighting in the other. Dr. Strangelove and Oppenheimer, both are stories centered around the bomb where Russians were an off-screen presence. Who can forget Peter Sellers' president saying over the phone, now then, Dimitri, you know how we always talked about the possibility of something going wrong with the bomb. The bomb, Dimitri. <laughs> thank you, Eric. Thank you, 
everyone for entering this week. It was nice to to see that people were invested in this massacre theater, Josh. And that means that the odds were stacked against anyone trying to win that film spotting t-shirt or tote bag. Reach in and pick out this week's winner. The lucky winner is Chad Bacon from right here in Chicago. Congratulations, Chad. Email feedback at filmspotting.net and we will set you up with your prize. Margaret just doesn't miss performances. If she can walk, crawl, or roll, she plays. The show must go on. No, dear. Margot must go on. We move on now to this week's edition of Massacre Theater, chosen as a tie-in with something that we thought we might talk about on the show, but now we're not. It's a new release. Let's say that. If you want to keep that in your head as you take in <laughs> these performances. So there, there isn't that clear connection, Josh, to the show, but that has never stopped our intrepid listeners from coming up with connections, right? No, not at all. <laughs> we are going to change one name just for kicks. And this is a performer that has been featured. Here's another hint. Has been featured pretty infamously. In the history of the show, but in 12 years or so of doing the show with you, neither of us have ever attempted this actor until now. I can't wait. I don't think so. And it's such a clear persona uh-huh. that if you don't get it right, it's just going to be disastrous. Yeah. You that, ready for that? That could be what we get because you've practiced this scene how much? Uh, zero times. <laughs> I have okay. watched the scene twice, though, and usually now, usually I only watch it once. So I've put in the work. <laughs> you put in the work. I thought that you had the only tough part here. I forgot what my performer was doing, including the sound effects. You yes. were doing the cigar chomping last week with the pens. I, I don't know what I'm, I'm going to do. What am I going to bite into this week, Josh? It's, it's your turn for the spittle. Enjoy. Okay, we got to do this before we both chicken out. You started off, I'm going to give you the action. Are you as ready as you're going to be? Sure. And action. Yes, adulation is across the bear. God knows I know. But someone's got to supplant our stand in the way of progress, Mayor. And don't deny it, Mr. Mayor. You've got the magic. Your charisma's bigger than both of us. Come on down. Uh, Mayor. Mayor. Max. Uh, Elections happen in November. Is this not late December? Don't worry about it. I want you to meet Jan and Josh, my image consultants. <laughs> and see. <laughs> wow. You were, I just you were had a feeling hairball. so confident that you added a little there at the end. I, I, I don't I don't know that I did. I mean, it's not in the script, but it's there in the performance. Oh, okay. You felt it. Um, I also did my homework. You were much, much better than me. <laughs> I, I do think that's true in this case, but our <laughs> listeners will probably write it and tell me otherwise. You didn't sound anything like that actor. Oh, I didn't think so either. <laughs> I think you know what there film, may have been a syllable. I nailed a syllable maybe somewhere a syllable. in there and then and then lost the thread immediately. Well, if you got that syllable and you know what film we massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. The deadline is Monday, August 21st. We will select the winner randomly from all the correct entries and announce it in a couple of weeks. Joanna! <laughs> 
C'était à Dakar. That's from the original trailer for Usman Samben's Black Girl from 1966. It is the second movie in our African cinema marathon, a survey of some of the best films produced by the continent from the 50s all the way to the 2010s. You can follow along at filmspotting.net slash marathons. Samben has been called the father of African cinema, and it was absolutely a lock that his work and this film would be included in this marathon, he has a story that's worthy of a film on its own. He was born to a fisherman father in a coastal city in French-occupied Senegal and was a laborer. He was drafted into the French army. He was a labor activist in post-war France before teaching himself to read and write French and becoming an award-winning novelist. All this before making Black Girl, which is his directing debut. He was in his 40s when he made it. Black Girls recognized as the first feature film released by a director from so-called sub-Saharan Africa, a term with a racist history associated with its long colonialist occupation. Black Girl is definitely wrestling with that or confronting that legacy. It comes out in 66, just like eight years, Josh, I think, after Senegal got its independence. This movie made Sight and Sounds once a decade, 100 greatest films of all timeless last year, landing it in a tie at number 95 with five other films, Jordan Peele's Get Out, Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in the West, Robert Brisson's A Man Escape, Buster Keaton's The General. This is this is heady company. And I would say it. I can say it, Josh. I promise you. But you are the resident pronouncer of this filmmaker's name, so please do it. A Pichabong Wurasitikul's Tropical Malady is what you're thinking of. That is. In terms of narrative, Black Girl is the story of Duana, played by Embassine Therese Diop, a young Senegalese woman who takes a job as a governess for a family in southern France, only to face discrimination there and really hardly be let out of the apartment of the people whom she's working for. Adam, I thought of two films, really, as I was watching this one, and I don't think they're perfect pairings for Black Girl, what we get here, but it did come to mind. One was Nanny from the Sierra Leonean American director Nekyatu Jusu. That's also about a Senegalese woman who works abroad with a white family. And also one of my top 10 listers from last year, Saint-Omer, which is another immigrant story of a young woman living in France from Senegal. And this one directed by Alice Giap Guslaji Malanda gives a great performance in that film. Those are both women wrestling with a new country, a new context, particularly one that in the case of Saint-Omer has direct racist relationships with her home country and navigating this entirely new landscape. Do you think these films offer a helpful comparison or is it fair to say that Samben's movie is focused on something completely different? Well, all three films are certainly unique and have their own subject matter and thematic concerns. But I really was thinking a lot of Nanny. I can see the connection to Saint-Omer as well. I think primarily, I'd love to hear why you had it in mind, but especially when you consider the two female leads here and the way as viewers, you're constantly trying to understand their mindset. You're trying to understand why they do some of the things they do or understand why they seem to feel the way that they feel. And there may even be a little bit of guilt 
with both characters, but that's something I'd want to give a lot more thought to. Nanny for me was one I thought about a lot, Josh, and part of that too was the the name, just the fact that the star of Nanny is Anna Diop, and that is a very popular surname in Senegal, so I don't think there's any relation there, but it is just another thing that made me link those two films, and you touched on some of this. You've got a young African woman going to a foreign country to work for a rich couple, feeling very displaced, feeling feeling out of place, feeling like maybe they got more than they bargained for from this. It wasn't what they expected the job to be. And the key difference, of course, is that this film doesn't have the mystical horror elements that Nanny had. You, during our conversation about that film, even wondered if it maybe needed to lean into all that and it just could have focused more on the story of that African woman. This is kind of that version. <laughs> if, if the movie stripped all that away and just focused on her character and her psychology and her disillusionment, a disillusionment that comes pretty quickly in both cases, but especially here. It is, it is not long before she realizes that this job isn't one that is going to bring her the happiness she hoped it would. And she maintains a pretty good disposition for a while, but we see her spiraling pretty quickly. And I'll throw back to you, Josh, another touchstone for me with this film. I thought a lot actually about Cassavetes. Hmm. I thought about our Cassavetes marathon, that almost cinema verite approach where sometimes the camera feels like it's a fly on the wall, but then we also get the the heavy reliance on a handheld camera. That focus on domestic life and domestic strife made me think of, of faces quite a bit. Some of the reliance on point of view shots as well made me think of Cassavetes. And while this film maybe didn't take some of the same chances visually that Cairo Station did, and Remember here, it is the first film by this filmmaker. It is a remarkably provocative film, and that's way before we get to an ending that's pretty shocking. Yeah, totally took me by surprise. And I would say the postscript after the ending, the shocking ending that I don't think we should give away, is to me what elevated this film to the mm -hmm. status that I think it rightly has as absolutely one of the classics. It involves this mask that's been a recurring item. We first see it in Dakar, the city in Senegal, where Duana lives. And we see a boy, I'm not sure if he's related to her or not, could possibly be related to her, but he has this wooden mask, a carved mask that he holds. And she brings it to her employers when they finally do hire her. She's been looking for a job like this. She brings it to them as a gift. And so many little clues in this movie, Adam, to let us know what's really going on without telling us directly in the dialogue. I think Samben is so smart about dropping visual details. And this mask plays such a crucial role because you'll notice when she hands it to her employers, they set it down right next to a shelf that has all sorts of other African artifacts. Right. And immediately we know that they appreciate it more as an artifact than a gesture of human connection. 
it is something to add to their collection. It's another thing to possess. It's another thing to possess. And immediately we recognize, tragically, before Duanna does, that she's in the same category. Mm -hmm. It isn't until they move back to France and then write to her and say, we'd like you to follow us over here. And she gets there. It doesn't take her long to realize that and realize that she is essentially a prisoner as she comes to begin to describe it. She's not allowed to go out. They had mm -hmm. talked to her about the, the, the wife had talked to her about being able to shop, see all these great shops that uh, are in this town that they're in. The wife is played by Anne-Marie Jelinek and that doesn't happen. She's just left to cook clean all day, which she wasn't doing back in Dakar. She was just taking care of the children. And then when the children arrive, that's added on top of it. And the way she describes this experience, again, in voiceover, there's not a lot of dialogue, but this was one that felt really pointed to me. She says, that's not what I came to France for, all these chores. I came to take care of, her, of the children. And then she talks about how they shut their doors all day. And I wish I could recall it. This is from, you know, I think before I launched my website, so I don't have easy access to it, but I wrote about a documentary of African immigrants and their experience, I believe it was in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. And I, listeners probably will know the name immediately, but it's from maybe the early 2000s. And what I do remember, that came to mind because they described their experience of America in a very similar way. Everyone was closed off. There was a striking lack of open community. And it's just interesting to me. I believe those the people in that documentary were from a different African nation. So it's interesting to me that people from different areas in Africa going to different Western countries, mm -hmm. right, have the same experience. And I think that's that, that's one of the very helpful things about a movie like Black Girl is to help us process those differences between certain communities as they're experienced by people going through this. And so it's at once a film that is tracing someone's personal, very tragic and harrowing experience of immigration, but also representing Duana is what she's also this political symbol, which I think the movie handles very well. We see the one uh, shot where she's, this is back in Dakar. She's in the apartment with uh, the man she's been dating for a while. And he stands up and we see him standing against uh, a flag. It appears talking about, I think it's referencing Congo independence, it might say on the flag. And so you see that this whole idea in the back in the background of the film is African nations achieving their independence, yet still having to act that out under the patronage, essentially, of these colonialist nations. Duana is embodying, embodying that precisely in her own experience, while at the same time representing it for an entire region. I think that is a very difficult trick to pull off for a film without coming across as obviously symbolic or or preachy or strident. And I don't think Black Girl is any of those things at all. One point to clarify here. We'll see if I'm right or your recollection actually matches mine when I point it out. It doesn't counter anything you said about the mask. In fact, I think it will reinforce a lot of what you said. But it's true that we see the mask for the first time in terms of the chronology of the characters when she gives it to them when she gets the job. But we actually see the mask way before that in the film. Yes, that's because, true. Yeah, she is actually in the timeline here. We we get flashbacks right. to Dakar. But in terms of our linear experience with the film, she 
opens the movie by taking this job and walks into the apartment and sees that mask on the wall. Yeah. And we don't know the backstory. Right. Yep. We don't That's know right. why she stops and looks at it. So immediately, without knowing that she bought it as a gift for them, we think she's reacting to it and pausing for some other reason. Mm-hmm. And it it sets up the significance of that mask and that it it carries some weight. I said that there isn't anything mystical about this film like Nanny, and that's true, but that mask is a symbol that that really seems to carry something with it, right? Carries carries this this entire weight of of her her people and her history, her country, and to see it just on this wall hanging there is something that it cues you in right away to this idea that her people in her history are there to be exploited. They're there to be looked at, maybe gazed at. They are there to be some form of a possession and really nothing more. It's not as if it's on that wall and you get the sense that the the people who are in that home love looking at it every day well, and understand its significance or anything like that. M- maybe at that point, because you are correct, it's very early in the film. It's before we've been in Dakar at all. The movie opens with her boat arriving in port in France. And so you have the chronology right, but I almost read that as she has not become yet disillusioned about her experience there. Maybe she walks in, sees it prominently placed on a a wall right as you come into their apartment and thinks, oh, they really do have an affinity for my culture and my experience. And eventually she comes to learn, no, it is a trinket to them to show off. Yeah. Just as they then show off their friends, her cooking, and we get the horrible yeah. scene of the one friend standing up and just kissing her out of yeah. nowhere. And, and calls and, her an animal. Yeah. And then, then it kind of goes downhill. But maybe in that moment, she sees that as an encouraging no, sign. No, I'll give you that at that point, it's ambiguous enough. But it turns out my my instinct watching it was this feeling of something more Mm. more portentous and something that that was weighing on her already the fact that she stops mm-hmm. that she really pauses and and seems to have i wish i could come up with a better word she has a heavy reaction to it and it makes us consider what that mask might symbolize and i think at least at that point josh for me it was the fact that she pauses the way she does it's the fact that it's just on the wall just on its own it somehow feels like it's not being given actually the full treatment that it should be given. It's just kind of thrown there. And I think if anything, it just maybe told me that this part of her culture, something that ties to her culture is at most a decoration for these people. It's a decoration. And it turns out that that's really how they see her. Oh, absolutely. Now there there's more to it than that. They clearly do have this sense of possession over her, but you mentioned the couple that comes over and, the dialogue there is really interesting because they're showing off her cooking. They're showing off what this maid can do for them. The the spicy food she makes that that's authentic African and all this stuff. And there's a bit when they're having coffee later where they're talking. And from what the older couple, the couple that has taken her in, from what they're saying to the other couple, it makes it sound like, Josh, like maybe they're even trying to recruit them. Like they're kind of trying to sell them on maybe going to Dakar themselves. And I think it's as if they're, they're showing her off with the notion that, well, you could go to Dakar and find your own 
decoration. You could find your own housemate that you can boss around and who can give you all of these authentic touches. And you can be special just like us. It felt like almost that it was part of the recruitment package. Yeah. That's how they were exploiting her. Yeah, I definitely think that that is definitely a play. And it's also interesting how stilted those conversations among mm-hmm. the French couples are in that sequence, but also among the husband and wife as well. The husband played by Robert Fontaine. And at first it struck me as, is this kind of awkward? But I do wonder if the point of all that is to put us more in the mindset of Duana, where she does know some French, but not all of it. She's always trying to figure out, she's trying to read between the emotional lines mm-hmm. of what she's being told and what they're really saying both to her and about her. And I have to imagine if you're doing that, that is how their speaking might seem. That it, It's more presentational and stiff and you're not getting all of the emotional information that you would otherwise if you were a native speaker because those are very odd scenes among the three of them. And to me, it just seemed to mirror the oddness of that relationship, which is never mm-hmm. right, never really on a established footing. She's always having the rug pulled out from under her as to her role, her value, um, and and who she is to these people. The colonialist aspect really comes through in this film. In a way, obviously, when you watch a movie like Nanny, you're not thinking about that. You are thinking about how they're taking advantage of her, how they seem to think they can maybe get away with using her in whatever ways they want because because she's poor. And what is she going to do about it? She's here to serve them. Okay, that's that's one level of this type of relationship. But when you have the history with the French and the country, the home country here, Senegal, that you have and that you have to be aware of, and that obviously this character, all the characters would be aware of. It's fascinating to watch the wife, for example, react to the fact that she seems to always be dressed up. Early on, she seems to be always dressed up for her job. She's wearing this lovely dress, and she looks impeccable, and she's putting on jewelry, and she's wearing heels, Josh. She's wearing heels really to mop in, to mop and to make coffee, and to put stuff away, and to clean up the newspapers. And you wonder watching it if it's maybe about a sense of dignity that she's trying to give herself. We hear some of the voiceover later about how that's something she came to France for. She wanted to see the culture and go to the shops and buy pretty dresses. That was part of the dream that that she sold herself and, and maybe was sold to her. And in fact, we hear some lines that say that, you know, they they told her what it would be like going out in Cannes and all these places that they really, it seems, have no intent of of taking her to and letting her her experience that. But the the wife can't stand it. The wife twice in the film calls her out for it. She buys her an apron mm-hmm. so she can put an apron over that outfit. She's going to find a way to dehumanize her, to put her in her place. And later she actually says to her, don't forget you're a maid. Mm-hmm. And why would that really matter if you've hired her to be a maid and everything she's doing is what you want her to do and you're bragging about her to any friends that come over why would how she dress be any kind of issue unless you felt like she was trying to rise above the position you think she's worthy of yeah so she can't stand that she can't abide the idea that 
this woman might ever think, forget that she's better than this couple, but that she's equal to them. Yeah, the use of wardrobe is so pointed in this film and in the way you just described, I also think I read that as, you know, those dresses, those Western dresses she wears, they're hand-me-downs from the wife. From the wife, and we find out later. when they're yeah. in Dakar in Senegal, that's okay for her to show off those because what does it express? It expresses the wife's generosity mm -hmm. and how much more she has than her and how she's being benevolent and allowing her to raise herself up above the clothing she would otherwise have to wear. But what happens back in France? Well, now, to your point, when she dresses like that, oh, she looks a little too good. She, mm -hmm. You know, this is a dress I would wear. And she maybe looks better than me. In That's it. right. And I can't have her walking around, even if it's just in my house where no one else sees, looking like that. So there's that element. And then I also love once Duana starts to express her independence or at least exert her displeasure, one of the first things she does is to comb out her natural hair. Yes. And then begin to put on her clothing that she came with, not the Western style clothing, but what she would wear back in Dakar. And those are just nice little gestures towards her independence coming out, which again is working on two levels, right? It's her individual independence and it's expressing also what does Senegal look like? What do these countries look like now? How do they express themselves when they no longer have to, are being forced to wear Western uniforms? Yeah. And that, that insistence on imposing their superiority actually reflects an inferiority. And you you get it in some of the dialogue, but you really have to watch the behavior and you have to read between the lines a little bit here. I don't think that Samban really spells it out. When they talk about the fact that they've hired her and she's doing the job of two people in Dakar, in Dakar, they had a status and maybe actually had more money than they have now when they're in France. They say at one point something like, we'll have to have a talk about what happens when the kids show up. It, it all suggests that things maybe aren't quite as good for this couple in terms of their overall status in society, which is why they're hanging on even more and pushing her even more to be everything to them because they actually can't afford. They can no longer afford to bring in all the people they think they really need, right, for the house, the people they probably really deserve. And if that's the case, well, they certainly can't have that person who is there only to serve them pretending that she's better than them mm -hmm. in any way. Yeah. Yeah. She even makes a comment in voiceover about how, um, you know, Madame never acted this way in Dakar. And I think that's reflecting exactly. some of the that's tensions the that are coming coming to the fore here. Yeah, I think what's fascinating, too, about this film and that performance is that the best word I could come up with is ghostly. She's kind of a ghostly presence. They talk about her like she isn't there, even though she's in earshot. Mm -hmm. when, when she is right by them and they're talking to her, they're still talking to her. They're talking to her like she's there, but like she she's insignificant. She She doesn't matter to them. And she only really communicates to herself or she talks in voiceover. That's that's how yeah. we understand 
what's going on inside her head. Otherwise, think about how many lines of dialogue there are in this film where she actually says something to another character. Even in Dakar, it really doesn't happen that that often. So everything is internal. It's all internalized by this character. And yet, despite that that kind of detachment to her, Diop's performance is so... <laughs> is so deep and so resonant and and never feels like a thin character or an insignificant character. No, not at all. And I also think that ghostliness connects with what I love so much about the ending. There's a way to read the ending, which brings back the mask yes. as it finds its way back to that boy in a way I won't detail, but there's something, yeah, what did you say in connection with Nanny Mystical? about yeah. how that plays out as well. You can well, read and that. And there's something haunting. Yes, haunting. You can read that as taking place on two different planes You can at the same time. I love the ending too. We won't spoil it, but I'll say that there is a shot that I think you could sort of put in the pantheon of, of faces that makes me think about Francois Truffaut and the 400 Blows. And I don't think we've ever done this top five list, but this movie made me think that we maybe at some point should devote time to the top five symbols in film mm. and the way yep. the mask is used here from beginning to end. It It's not maybe as oblique as a lot of symbols in, in film can be where you really can spend hours thinking about what it really means. And, and it's so ambiguous. I don't think there's a lot of ambiguity here necessarily, but I also don't know that if we both sat down and decided to write an essay on what we thought the mask really stood for and what the full weight of it was, I think we'd probably have some things in common and we'd see some other things differently because it is it is that strong of a symbol that the viewer can take away whatever they want from it. Yeah, a very rich artifact richly used in this film. Black Girl is currently available on the Criterion channel and VOD. If you see it and agree or disagree with our thoughts, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. The Criterion channel is also hosting Samben's follow-up to Black Girl, 1968's Mandabi, along with two of the director's shorts and the documentary Samben, The Making of African Cinema. And because 2023 happens to be the centenary of Samben's birth, you may be lucky enough to catch retrospectives of his work. If you're in New York in September, New York's Film Forum is going to host a two-week retrospective of his films featuring new 4K restorations of some of his 70s work, along with screenings of Black Girl and his final film, which was 2004's Mulade. We keep seeing these films and films from Africa, Josh, popping up and playing in different places or different opportunities for people to see them. Just an hour or so ago, we got an email from a listener who has a great Sam Van Hogren nickname, Dan, serial monologist, <laughs> monologist, <laughs> monologist Wagner, who says, hi, Sam, Adam, and Josh, perhaps of note for your African cinema marathon, the film foundation in their free screening room are playing two Egyptian films, Al Momia and the Eloquent Peasant. The Film Foundation and some other groups have helped to preserve Black Girl and Tuki Buki. That's going to be another film in our marathon. And moreover, have helped to preserve numerous titles from the African continent since 2018 through the African Film Heritage Project. He links to a short teaser that's on YouTube about this work. We'll put that in our show notes and on our marathons page. Full disclosure from Daniel, his wife works for the Film Foundation and might be mortified to know I sent this along, but they and my wife do amazing work. So 
Again, lots of opportunities to see some great films, more information on our marathons page at filmspotting.net. Actually, Tukibuki from 1973 is the next film in our marathon. When I come back from my little break, Josh, it's another Senegalese film. It's one you've seen, one you've talked about fairly recently on the show, made a top five list, I think, the top five films of 1973. So we already know you dig it. I dig it. We'll, Wait a we'll see what I We'll see what I think about Tuki Buki in a few weeks. It's available on the Criterion channel as well and on HBO Max and other VOD platforms. And Josh, that is our show. If you would like to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Letterboxd, or Instagram, Threads as well. We're both on Threads. You can find Adam at Film Spotting, and I'm at Larson on Film. The Kurt Film Spotting poll has us asking about 90s action movies, specifically 90s action movie adversaries. Next week, Michael Phillips and I will revisit 1993's The Fugitive. You can vote for your favorite 90s action movie adversaries at filmspotting.net. You can get t-shirts or other merch at filmspotting.net slash shop. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com. And for as little as five bucks a month, you can listen to the show early and ad free, plus get a weekly newsletter and access to monthly bonus shows or access to the entire Film Spotting archive. That's all at filmspottingfamily.com. In limited release, you can see passages expanding to more screens. I wasn't enthusiastic last week on the show when talking about it, but I certainly wouldn't dissuade anyone from seeing the new Ira Sachs film. He will be in attendance in Chicago, Josh, for post-screening Q&As at the Music Box Friday, August 11th. So by the time our radio audience hears this, they will have missed this opportunity, but I know a lot of podcast listeners will hear it hopefully Friday morning. If you're in the Chicago area thinking about going to the music box, you can see passages and hear that Q&A with the co-writer and director. In wide release, you can see Jules, a flying saucer, lands in Ben Kingsley's backyard with Jane Curtin. I would actually like to see the movie where a flying saucer lands in Ben Kingsley's backyard. That's not it. It's he's playing. I mean, someone. maybe it is. I, I, I'm assuming he's playing okay. someone, but I, I'm thinking more of a being John Malkovich kind Got of scenario it. that that might bring me out to see Jules. The Last Voyage of the Demeter is also out. The Demeter. Thank you, Sam. He says, FYI, it's Count Dracula's ship that arrived in London with none aboard. Good cast here. Corey Hawkins, Aisling Franciosi, who we praise a lot. I might have to see this one. I might have to see it too. I watched a little bit of the trailer and it's really Count Dracula. Oh, okay. I'll I'll keep that in mind. It's not Dracula, Josh, so don't say it. Next week, The Fugitive at 30 with Josh and Michael Phillips. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistants are Betty Lavendero and Veronica Phillips. Special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.